0: This podcast is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight offers software and analytics solutions that deliver customer experiences to utilities like Amazon and Netflix. Uplight made a five-part podcast about what disruptors and other industries can teach utilities. I had a role in that. And guess what? Season two is coming up later this fall. It's going to feature interviews and conversations with some of the most important disruptors in energy and how they think about the future of the industry. Search for Illuminators wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about Uplight's expanding services to help remake the utility-customer relationship, visit Uplight.com. The Interchange is also brought to you by PG&E. You know, customers in PG&E service territory in Northern California drive one out of every five EVs in the country. The electric transportation revolution, it's happening with individuals, but it needs more than just you and me. So PG&E launched an EV fleet program to help electrify medium and heavy-duty fleet vehicles. Get in touch with one of their specialists to find out how you can go electric and drive change. Find out more at pge.com GTM. This is The Interchange. Conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome to the show. We are now in a new age for clean energy. The age of 100%. Every week we get some new declaration from a corporation, a city, a state, or a utility that they are going 100%. But 100% what? Not all targets are created equal. 100% clean, 100% renewable, 100% carbon-free, net-zero emissions, to a person who doesn't follow energy closely, they may all seem like the same thing. Of course, they can mean wildly different things in terms of timing, ambition, and complexity. So this week, we are surveying the range of targets. Which ones matter? What do they add up to? And have they changed what's possible? Shil Khan is a hundred percent with me this week from Berkeley, California. Shale is the managing director at Energy Impact Partners, a VC firm that invests in clean energy uh, technologies and companies alongside utilities. Hello, Shale. How are you?
1: Hello, Stephen. It is a pleasure to be with you, one hundred percent.
0: Well, after so many episodes with guests, it's just you and me, Shale, this week. How do you feel about that?
1: Oh, I feel great about it. I've been I've been craving a little us time, Stephen. So, you know, happy to have that with you.
0: We need our one-on-one time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the last week, Shale and I have been looking at the headlines, and there's been a bunch of major activity in the 100% arena. Virginia just announced that it wants 100% carbon-free electricity by 2050. That's being spearheaded by the governor. Duke Uh, The utility that sells the most electricity in the country wants to be net zero emissions by 2050. So that's not exactly a 100% target, but it's in the same family. And Unilever is getting 100% renewable energy in five continents. Unilever is obviously this gargantuan corporation that owns a lot of different uh, major companies. So that got us thinking, what do these targets actually mean? We're hearing so many of them. And, and uh, are they going to add up to something meaningful? Shale, when you see these announcements come through, what is your reaction usually?
1: Um, I think there's two answers to that question. The first one is, Uh, along with my colleague, Madison Freeman at EIP, we've been starting to track all these announcements and these targets pretty closely because we think there's something behind this broader trend. And so we're just trying to make sure that we have a handle on like, who has made all of these commitments and what do they mean? So the first thing that I do typically is just send the announcement to Madison and see if we've already tracked it. Sometimes we have, sometimes we haven't. But more broadly, I think for me, the question then is, is this something I need to understand more deeply or can it kind of pass through in the wash of all these announcements? As you said, they're coming really fast, three just this week already. um, And sometimes they come at an even faster clip than that. So then there's the question of like, is this meaningful enough for me to dig in and understand the details? And sometimes the answer is yes. And often the answer is no. And I think it totally depends on who is making the commitment, what the commitment actually is, uh, and, and what kind of power they have to enforce it.
0: Okay, then, as you're tracking this, what players are you tracking? Who is actually making these commitments? I hinted at them in my show notes, but I'd like to know how you're categorizing the players involved.
1: Right. So I think there's four groups, broadly, who are making these kinds of commitments of some sort or another at scale. The first one would be cities. We now have, a last count that I saw, 123 cities in the United States who have committed to some version of 100% renewable energy or 100% clean energy. The second group would be corporates. Um, this is a big trend that we've talked about before where corporates are, are making these commitments often through this group RE100 where they're committing to 100% renewable energy procurement themselves where I think at a, over 180 corporations who have done so, including many, many big companies. Then we have utilities who are making these commitments voluntarily. Um, Excel Energy really sort of kicked this off as being the first major utility to make such a commitment. And oftentimes these commitments amongst utilities, they'll be um, something like 100% carbon free or 100% net carbon free. We've tracked Over 20 investor-owned utilities that have made commitments to lower their emissions by 80% or more, and at least eight that are saying they will hit 100% carbon-free or carbon-neutral. So utilities are group three. And then the last group is states, which is the smallest total number, but as we'll talk about, could be the biggest impact, which are either introducing or passing basically extensions to or expansions to their renewable portfolio standards that get them to 100%. Again, either 100% renewable or 100% carbon free. And we're up to 16 states now that have either introduced or passed such legislation, basically all within the past year. Um about 10 of which have legislation now in place or a an executive order from the governor. So the final group is states doing it for statewide renewable energy procurement or energy procurement in general. So those are the four groups, cities, corporates, utilities, and states.
0: So you mentioned that as you are categorizing these, sometimes you're categorizing the targets as not meaningful. What do you mean by that? And which group is often in the not meaningful category?
1: Yeah. And I guess I should probably clarify before I get a bunch of angry emails that it's not that it's not meaningful, but just like in terms of um, magnitude of impact, I would say the group that where I, when I see these commitments, I'm sort of spending the least time trying to understand the nuances would be cities. And the reason for that is that though we have well over a hundred cities that have made these kinds of commitments, the vast majority of what's behind those commitments at the city level are basically cities saying, uh, we will commit to procuring hundred percent clean energy for our own municipal facilities. Because in the, in the case of most cities where there's not a municipal utility, the city does not actually have the ability to procure energy on behalf of its citizens, right? That's the job of the utility or the citizens themselves. And so the city's power is restricted to, well, we have a bunch of municipal facilities for which we do procure power. We are a customer, so we will commit to 100%. And that's great, but they're not – You know, cities are, are significant electricity load. They're not huge electricity load broadly speaking. So great for a city to do that. But in most of these cases, you know, it doesn't move the needle a huge amount, even at the city level.
0: So on the city side, you have a few different types of targets. One is obviously just buying power for municipal buildings. And that's mostly what these targets entail. But there's also a couple unique ones. One is cities that actually municipalize, they literally own the infrastructure. And you see a couple of utilities um, that are interested in procuring 100% renewable power or close to. Uh, In California, there where you live, there are uh, community choice aggregation models that's kind of like municipalization, and many of those CCAs are shooting for 100% 100% renewable energy. How significant is that trend?
1: Well, it's very significant in California, and there's a couple of examples of emerging community choice aggregations in other states like Illinois. Um, but in California, it's a huge deal. I think there's something like 16 CCAs now here, and you know, CCAs are kind of a unique beast and we could do and probably should at some point do an entire episode just talking about them. But, you know, the short version is that they become effectively a competitive retailer for customers to the incumbent utility. They don't own the lines and wires that stays with the incumbent utility, but they do procure energy on the customer's behalf. And because they procure energy, they can control the source of that. California is interesting in that, you know, it's one of the states, which we'll talk about in a minute that have already made a commitment to 100% clean energy. But oftentimes the CCAs are basically trying to do it faster. So they're trying to get there already today or, you know, sometime in the near future. So it's not, you know, I wasn't counting that in the like city procurement targets necessarily. CCAs are not always at the city level. For example, I'm the customer of East Bay Community Energy, which is um, the entire East Bay. So, you know, Berkeley, Oakland, and, and a bunch of other cities. Um, so it wasn't necessarily part of the city procurement trend, but you're right that it is sort of a a different shade on the... Local aggregation for the purpose of uh, accelerating the clean energy transition.
0: So, around the country, there are well over 100 cities that are, quote, ready for 100. That means that they're either ready to commit to getting 100% renewable electricity, or they're already attempting to, they're already building a program around procuring 100% renewable energy. That's significant in terms of messaging, uh, but it's probably the lowest impact of all of these groups. Let's go to states now. Um, You mentioned that there are a handful of states now with targets with 100% renewable energy or 100% clean energy. They're mostly 100% clean energy targets. These targets, according to the Union of Concerned Scientists, now cover more than 86 million people. That's well over a quarter of the U.S. population. Um, 18% of U.S. electricity consumption uh, based on 2016 numbers and they could potentially reduce emissions 138 million metric tons which would be 8% of United States emissions in 2016. So the states are a lot more significant.
1: Yeah, I think there's a possibility that this ends up being the most significant one. Because just contextually, you know, the growth of renewable energy to date in the United States, I would argue has been driven by Two levels of policy, right? There's the federal policy, which is the investment tax credit and the production tax credit. But just as important, in fact, a necessary factor in spurring the original growth of renewable energy was the states, which introduced renewable portfolio standards. We now have more than 30 states that have some form of renewable portfolio standard and though renewables have become cheap enough in many cases that you know states are procuring or utilities are procuring even outside of those standards those standards nonetheless have been an inc- you know among the most important drivers in this market now what's interesting is that just over the past couple of years we now have this trend of a few states who have extended those targets out further in time typically, so we should talk about the timeline here, but you know, typically they're saying out to 2045 or 2050. And by that date, they say the target will be 100%, either 100% renewable or 100% clean. The big distinction between those two obviously being whether nuclear is included or not. But either way, um, the interesting thing is, so along with, again, my colleague Madison Freeman, we've been sort of tracking how quickly these new state-level targets have been placed. And if you sort of track it to the history of RPS standards, RPSs have an interesting history, which was the first one was passed in Iowa, like in the 80s, I think, or early 90s, really, really way back in the day um, to spur the wind industry. And then nothing happened for a while. But then around 1998, you started to see the market really take off. And once it took off, it, it took years and years and years, but it was a slow build until we got to the point where Now we have more than 30 states. If you look at this trend toward 100% clean or 100% renewable, right now, states are adopting faster. It's really only been since 2016 that any state of meaningful size outside of Hawaii has introduced one of these standards. Um, Actually, I think Hawaii was even in 2016. And we're already up to 11 states that have already got legislation or an executive order in place, which is faster than it was happening in the... RPS era. So the question is, um, you know, there's meaningful demand that will shift, assuming all of this actually happens just as a result of the targets that are in place, according to the numbers that you just laid out. But the question for me is, does this become a trend that really, picks up in the same way that renewable portfolio standards did. Because if you draw the line forward and you imagine we get to the same place, say the same 30 states, just extend their targets out and make it 100%, then you're at the vast majority of electricity load in the country and you've basically at the state level almost sort of defaulted into a nearly national 100% clean energy standard. So I think this is really important.
0: And I think the trend will continue, but the deciding factor here is – elections. And so the reason why you've seen all this activity in states is because there were some new democratic governors and new democratic controlled legislatures in states and there was a renewed push for more aggressive clean energy policy. And This is not a political statement, by the way. There's just clearly a huge divide between red and blue states. Blue states have way more aggressive climate and clean energy policy. And so the question is, how many states are going to be controlled by Democrats in upcoming elections? And if Dems pick up more legislatures and governorships, then the trend will continue. And if they don't, it will slow down. You know, I was looking at um, some of the recent activity, and, and I thought about your home state of Wisconsin, Shale. This is a really unpredictable process. So for example, Republican Governor Scott Walker lost his race in the 2018 election, in large part because of this failed Foxconn deal that he tried to broker. And that scandal allowed Democrat Tony Evers to take the helm. And now he's pushing the state's utilities to pursue 100% clean energy. Um, So Wisconsin, a state that may not have ever considered this under Walker, is now seriously considering a pathway toward 100% clean energy for utilities. And I think elections are unpredictable. They can create all sorts of scenarios. And really, the way that this happens is uh, if Democrats start taking control of more states.
1: I think that's probably true to a degree. And certainly looking at the list of states that have been early adopters of this 100% uh trend it, it's definitely blue states i mean it's you know california washington northeast states like you said wisconsin illinois um but i guess my question is will it will it jump over the line in the way that rps's have now again we only still have 30 states with renewable portfolio standards and the the other 20 definitely lean red uh, but you know we, d- we have a bunch of republican states that do have rps standards in place and renewable energy polls well Um, you know, sort of across the political spectrum. So while I think you're right that early adopter states are likely to be democratically controlled, I think something happened with RPSs over the years. And I wonder whether this 100% thing will go through the same transition, perhaps even leapfrog, um, or whether, you know, it just, you're right, it just sort of caps out at how many states are run by Democrats.
0: I think you will see more Republican states build on ambitious clean energy policy. Everyone wants it. The, the polling is clear. Utilities know how much customers want this. Like, it's it's very clear that that's the direction that we're headed in. But utilities still have a very strong influence on local politics. And in states where you may have more regulatory capture, where you may have utilities that are really influential, you're probably going to get some resistance. And if you don't have lawmakers that are willing to fight for this, and no matter what, then you're probably going to see those efforts stall out. So that doesn't mean there won't be progress, but that doesn't mean necessarily you're going to see a bunch of states at once pass 100% renewable energy laws. The ones that have done it are the ones that are not surprising.
1: Let's put a pin in that one for a second because I disagree with you. Um, I don't, I don't think utilities are going to be the primary barrier here. And we should come back to that when we talk about the utility targets themselves, but just to like signal a little bit, um, lots of the utilities that have been setting these own targets themselves voluntarily have been in traditional Republican States. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't think utilities are going to be the ones who are stopping this necessarily.
0: Okay. Well, let's get to utilities, but let's wrap up the state's conversation. Again, so far, the targets are, represent almost 20% of US electricity consumption based on 2016 numbers. So this is pretty significant. Uh, how important is, are the states right now, in your opinion?
1: I, I think the states are, depending on what happens with this trend, I think the states might be the most important of the four.
0: And do you think they're going to be able to hit these targets? That's well, the question.
1: That's a different question. Right. And I, I think there are a few threads that we should probably pull out here. There are lots of nuances to all these targets and what they actually are. Are they legislation? Are they executive order? Are they just considering something? So devil's in the details. But, you know, the the major sort of, I think, distinguishing factors that are worth talking about in these are, one, the renewable versus carbon-free thing. Um, again, sort of like how does nuclear get considered? And that, that – mm-hmm. You know, especially in states that have any nuclear, the possibility of nuclear that ends up being a little fight in every single one of these. Um, and many of these bills have started out as 100% renewable and ended up as 100% clean. That's what happened in California, for example. So that's one sort of distinguishing factor to to think about. The second one is the timeline here. Let's be clear that, as I said before, basically all of these targets are saying we will be 100% something by 20 either 2045 or 2050. So it's pretty distant. Um, and the degree to which they have milestones that have to be hit in the meantime also is a detail that varies by individual state.
0: And and the resource mix too, right? So like if you're if you're a state with a bunch of hydro and biomass, then this is going to be an easier target for you to hit, which is why, you know, a state like Maine, for example, jumped on board and, and has set a 100% Washington State. So, so you know, if you've got a more diverse range of resources, then it's going to be a lot easier for you to hit. Uh, and Vermont included as well, hydro is going to play a huge role in Green Mountain Powers. Uh, att- well, that's a utility, obviously, but but hydro is going to play a huge role in the push for 100% renewable energy in Vermont. My point being, resource diversity is really key. Yep,
1: that's right. It, there's, a, there's a big difference between the The states that are going to have a much easier time are already much further along in that path versus those that have a long way to go. So Washington state, which has tons of hydropower, can have a much, much easier time than, say, Illinois, um, which still has a lot of coal.
0: And I'll just say that, yes, it's going to be harder for them to hit some of these targets. It depends on how nuclear plants get relicensed. It depends on whether new hydro facilities are Um, built. But largely, the march of wind and solar is so strong that I'm pretty confident that states can get close to hitting their targets. I think these are realistic targets for sure.
1: I mean, who knows, right? It's 2045 or 2050. It's 25 to 30 years away. I think the question is like, one, do these have teeth? um, And will they stick around? Will this legislation continue to exist and two does it provide a signaling function to the market today does it provide demand for anything um, that could be built today that will get us further along that path this is the benefit of the 100 percent thing is you know it has to be a long-term target in most of these cases it'd be really hard to get to 100 percent tomorrow but can you create a mechanism so that you pull in uh demand for investment in r&d around the suite of technologies we're going to need to get to 100%
0: Okay, next up, we're going to be talking about utilities. Before we do that, I want to talk about our sponsors. One is a utility and one is helping utilities. We're brought to you by Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. In fact, this is a regular super group of companies. It's Tendril, Simple Energy, First Fuel, Energy Savvy, and EMI, All blended together. They became Uplight and they are bigger and better than ever before. They have also produced a five-part podcast series on How we can learn from disruptive change in other industries and apply it to utilities. I had a role in that podcast. It's called Illuminators, and season two is coming up. It's going to feature deep interviews with some leading voices in energy and dissect their experiences and projections on the drastic changes underway in the energy and utility sector. Go check out Illuminators anywhere you get your podcasts. We're also brought to you by PG&E. Now is the time to begin electrifying your medium and heavy-duty fleet. What are you waiting for? It is now cost-effective to do this. And with PG&E's help, you can do it quickly. They've got limited-time incentives. They have the infrastructure know-how. And they are here to help. They are going to give you the financial support, the logistical support, and the construction support. So get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn how you can go electric, lower your total cost of ownership, and drive change head on over to pge.com slash GTM. Okay, let's talk about utilities now. This is a pretty big and interesting one. And again, we have varied goals among the major utilities that are setting forth these 100% targets. So who has set these targets and which ones are meaningful, Shale?
1: So as I mentioned before, my colleague Madison and I have tracked at least 23 investor-owned utilities that have made commitments to lower their emissions, at least 80%, um, often 80 or 90%. Uh, and then a bunch of them, eight, at least that have said they will be 100% renewable energy or hundred percent carbon neutral or carbon free. The one I think that like got the most attention early and deserves a lot of credit for being an early move here is Excel energy. And so caveat Excel energy is one of our partners at, at EIP. Um, and I won't say anything that isn't public here. So Excel was, is a, is a big utility. They operate in much of Colorado, much of Minnesota. Um, and they made a commitment to get to 80% carbon reduction by 2030 relative to 2005 levels, which is sort of what everybody benchmarks off of. Cause that's what the international climate accords are based on generally. So 80% reduction in emissions from their generation by 2030 and a hundred percent reduction by 2050. And the thing that I think Excel deserves additional credit for beyond just sort of making that target is then putting out a bunch of additional work publicly around their their thinking around what it's going to take to get there. And so they've been putting real meaningful thought into those targets and how to orient themselves around them. Um, And they also expressed, I think, a feeling that is broadly appreciated, which is the 2030 target, at least for them, seems eminently achievable with sort of existing technology. Um, You know, Colorado in particular happens to be a good resource state for both wind and solar. So they've got that going for themselves, but they can get to 80% reduction by 2030. The hard part is going from 80 to hundred percent, which is why they gave themselves an additional 20 years to do so. But Excel set that target. Um, And since then we've had a whole bunch of additional utilities that have made similar targets of their own. As you mentioned, Duke just did so this week, and that's another really big utility. But, you know, we've had a bunch of other smaller investor-owned utilities that have set their own targets, uh, and and many others that are sort of starting to say, okay, proactively – Here's where we expect we can get to, generally along the same timeframes that you see at the state level. So some interim target in 2030 or 2035, and then some final target, which is generally close to or at 100% by 2045 or 2050.
0: Excel really was an important leader here. And... I heard from Brett Carter, who is the chief customer uh, innovation officer at Excel, who said, as soon as they announced this, this target, they got a lot of applause from the industry. And then other executives, and like board members at the country's biggest utilities came to them and said, how do we do this? Like, good for you guys. We actually want to do this too. So I think it's the beginning of a pretty major shift in the utility space. And I I think they believe in it because they know that their customers want it. So last year, the Edison Electric Institute commissioned this poll asking customers whether they wanted 100% renewable energy. And it showed that 87% of people want it. And 70% in the polling agreed that we need to do it in the near future. So people want it now. And Get this: 51% say that 100% renewables is a good idea, even if it raises their energy bills by 30%. That's not some like environmental group or you know liberal uh, political group. This is the EEI, the Edison Electric Institute polling people. So utilities realize that like customers want it. And in, in the case of a utility like Excel, you have Boulder, Colorado, that wants to municipalize and disconnect from Excel's operations, and. Um, you have people who are demanding 100% renewable energy. So you've got both uh, pressure from customers and this desire to serve them. And so I just think that this is the beginning of a pretty major shift, and kudos to Excel for beginning that shift.
1: Yeah, I think, look, I mean, there's, I think, a fair amount of skepticism amongst the environmental community about some of these utility targets, less so Excel's, I think, but some of the other ones. So sometimes the skepticism is around in the interim world, like how can you be setting, how can you, how can you get all this credit for saying you're going to be a hundred percent carbon free when you continue to, uh, operate coal plants or you continue to procure for new natural gas or, you know, something like that. Like oftentimes you'll see these two things put side by side and, and see somebody say like, this is hypocritical basically, um, and I don't necessarily think that it is. I mean, it's case by case, but, um, but those two things, you know, the timelines allow for both things. There's a transition period and none of these utilities are saying they're going to get to 100% carbon free by tomorrow. But let me just sort of step back because I think the broader – my guess is that a lot of the skepticism stems from this, this just sort of like general feeling of utilities don't really mean it when they say it. Um, so let me see if I can attempt to make the sort of purely rational business case that I, I suspect some utilities may be thinking as they're contemplating these targets, which is basically, one, what you described. Customers are starting to demand it themselves and in some cases going so far as to consider um, exiting from the utility in order to do so. You have this with some municipalization in certain locations. You could say the CCAs are sort of part of this in California. You also have corporates doing it themselves and trying to procure energy directly through direct access or something else. Um, And in some cases, paying exit fees to the utility to do so, which is what Microsoft has done in in the state of Washington. It's what a bunch of data centers have done in, in the state of Nevada. So you have this clear customer demand signal and to some degree a sort of what you could argue is like a smart defensive maneuver of saying, well, we can provide this. You shouldn't have to go elsewhere for it. Um, then you've got this kind of broad consumer sentiment thing, which to be honest, I'm skeptical that if you raised all those people's electricity bills, 30% and said, it's a hundred percent clean that they would actually be happy about it. Um, but nonetheless, it is clear that it's, it, it pulls well. And then third, you know, purely from an economic perspective, renewables can be really good for utilities. There's this term steel for fuel, right? So fuel, which utilities procure from, uh, from uh, say a natural gas plant or coal plant or something like that, that's a pass-through. They don't earn a return on that, but they do earn a return on the capital investment in the project itself. Well, renewables are all capital investment, right? O&M costs for renewables are virtually zero, um, but the capital is really large. So if you are you know indifferent in every other way and you have the choice in your utility, Uh, to invest in and own a solar project versus a natural gas project, generally speaking, you probably want to own the solar project. It's higher capex. You can earn a larger return. So it's good for you. The thing that holds you back more than anything else is you are highly incentivized um, by your regulators and by customers to maintain a really high level of reliability. You get dinged for any reduction in reliability and to maintain low costs. So you only want to do this if you think there's a plausible path to maintaining your current level of reliability, if not increasing it, and not increasing customer bills. And I think that's what's changed over the past couple of years is that as everybody's running this analysis over and over again, they're starting to see a pathway where you can transition certainly in some interim period to low carbon and then ultimately to no carbon, While still maintaining those two things. And if those two things are true, then there's no reason a utility wouldn't do it.
0: I think that's a very good case for the rational decision-making at utility boards, why they're setting these targets. To go back to the criticism, I think there's one other criticism, and that is these targets are pretty far out. They leave a lot of room for technologies that may or may not exist. Some environmental groups don't like the idea that they're relying on nuclear. Um, but the big question is, do these targets, because they're so far out, and I think this is like a legitimate question for, for cities and corporates and utilities, but let's just focus on utilities. Um Is this target so far out that it's actually meeting what the science tells us needs to happen in terms of emissions reductions? And in the case of Excel, I actually think the answer is yes. And that's the reason why Excel is considered um, the standard setter for utilities, because not only did it put together these targets, it actually went to... um, the University of Denver to model its goals and then compare them with what the United Nations says is necessary to keep global temperature rise at 2 degrees C. And these targets are in line with what needs to happen in the broader electricity sector. So to go the extra mile and to do the modeling and to very clearly lay out the goals in that context— is going to be important for a lot of other utilities to do. And if we see enough utilities do that, then I think cumulatively, they truly will have a, a good impact.
1: Yeah, I think that what you want out of these targets is first, you know, some real thinking behind them. As you said, Excel has sort of, I think, proven that, that they've done that kind of thinking and that kind of modeling and that they continue to orient themselves around trying to meet the target that they've set for themselves. So first you wanna see that kind of analysis. And the second is then you've got something that you can use in every irp from now on in integrated resource plans and you can basically say okay does what you are currently planning comport with your stated intention to reach these particular targets show me that this is consistent with that and if it is then proceed and if not then why not and so at least having that as like an anchor i think is pretty valuable
0: well then let's hop over to the final category which uh is the corporates and You're talking about the biggest companies in the world that are setting these targets, uh, well over 150 of the world's biggest corporations. How impactful and how varied are the targets in this area, Shale?
1: Well, they're very impactful and perhaps impactful in the shortest time horizon in the sense that a significant portion of renewables that are being built right now are being built to meet the demand that is arising from all these corporates setting all these targets and then having to procure around them and they're actually, I don't think broadly all that varied. I think the, the big change has been, it used to be, if you were going to try to be a hundred percent renewable, you would just buy racks to meet that, you know, you had companies like Pepsi that were doing that over a decade ago. Now, very few companies say that they are a hundred percent renewable energy just by procuring racks. They're trying to procure power and racks. And in many cases trying to do so, um, you know, within the territory of individual facilities and they're getting much more sophisticated about it. So I think it's very impactful. Um, you know, the, the question is kind of what the next step is, because now we're starting to get to the point where more and more of these companies are actually quote unquote hitting their 100% target. And what that means generally speaking is that they have procured an equivalent number of kilowatt hours of renewable, energy to meet the total number of kilowatt hours that their facilities use. Right. And sometimes it is also local and sometimes it is also power delivery. What it is not typically is time matched. Right. So they're not actually technically powering all their facilities with renewables, even setting aside the like, you know, electrons are fungible in the grid thing. Um, What they are doing is sort of matching total load and so yeah, it's accounting. Yeah. Um and so it's meaningful because it is getting new renewables built, right? So the fundamental question years ago back in the early days of renewable energy credits and carbon offsets were are these things additional? Do they actually when you buy this thing does it actually add more clean energy to the grid? And in most of these cases with the corporates I think the answer is yes. They are enabling projects to get built that would not otherwise have been built. So it's
0: impactful. And not only are they enabling new projects, these projects under contract represent a huge portion of the capacity built yearly. So companies have signed deals for 8.5 gigawatts here in America. Uh, that was in 2018. And in 2018, the actual built renewables capacity was 10.3 gigawatts. So, you know, you're talking about contracts that are, are worth a huge portion of the actual build out each year. And obviously those projects are going to get built over time, but you can see that they are having a meaningful impact on the number and size of projects that are built in the United States. And then the, the trend is starting to shift internationally.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, like I said, I think it's, it's very impactful and, uh, as you mentioned, it is driving the market today, which is, I think, somewhat distinct from basically all the other targets that we've been talking about, which are setting kind of long-term goals. Um, But I do think that there is a next phase that has to happen. And what's interesting is I think you have individual examples of sort of two different directions that companies are taking right now to go beyond just saying 100% renewable or 100% clean. So one example is Google, which is saying we, we've we hit 100% renewable. Now we want to match it on a time basis. We want to be 24-7 renewable is how they described it. And that's a much more difficult challenge because obviously then you need to figure out like on a minute by minute, hour by hour basis throughout the entire year, how can you at any given time be procuring from wind or solar, or perhaps they will start nuclear or something like that. Um, So that's one challenge that they are taking on. You haven't seen a lot of other corporates yet commit to doing the same, Um, but Google was an early adopter just on the renewable procurement in the first place. So perhaps they will lead the market and then others will follow there. And then there's a second one that I find fascinating, which is a very, very new trend. Really only two companies have done any version of this commitment, um, which is Stripe and Shopify, both tech companies, uh, have made commitments to procure for carbon removal. So Stripe is basically saying, we will commit to buying uh, credits from direct air capture, which is a very, very nascent technology to basically pull CO2 directly out of the air and in Stripe's case, they're saying we will do it at any cost because they realize that a hundred bucks a ton they might pay maybe way more than that could be way way yeah. more than that who knows, um, but you know I think that's exactly if you want to. If you want direct air capture in the world, this is exactly the way to do it because they recognize this is an extremely nascent technology for which there isn't much of a demand pull from a policy perspective yet. So they're saying we will become the demand pull and we recognize it's going to be very expensive because it's new, so we'll pay whatever we have to pay. And that's that's fascinating to me.
0: So so this is so new and novel. Do you think that like the power of large corporations and tech companies could actually create this revival or this surge in in direct air capture and CCS? Totally. Yeah. So it might not come from the government. It might actually come from like corporates who are directly paying for this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's a replacement for government efforts, but as a mechanism to spur demand, you know, they're, they're in many cases, they're price insensitive, right? The early renewable procurement the, these companies were not saving money necessarily. Some of them still aren't today, but that's okay with them. They're willing to pay some money to, you know, get the branding benefit and also just to improve the world in the way that they want. If they feel strongly about a particular suite of technologies that are going to have a hard time getting off the ground, they can play a meaningful role in creating the market for that. So I don't know how much is going to follow from Stripe and Shopify, but um, but I, I think that that's a trend. Definitely worth watching.
0: Well, just like utilities, these corporates play off of each other. And as you said, Google was an early procurer of utility-scale renewables, and a lot of other companies followed. And remember that Google was one of the first to put solar on its campus in 2006, I believe. That was a multi-megawatt system. It was one of the biggest systems in the U.S., at the time, and every other company followed. And I think we're just gonna see a similar case. This is the direction we're moving in. Who knows how quickly the carbon removal piece will move, but certainly this 24-7 renewables piece spearheaded by Google will catch on with other companies, I have no doubt.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right.
0: Okay, so we've gone through the list of all the players and whether or not these targets are significant, established some standards for how to think about them. What does it all mean? Has this shifted what's possible in terms of creating targets and meeting those targets? What do you think, Shiel?
1: I do think it has changed the game a little bit. I mean, I don't want to overstate it entirely, but I think that this idea of 100% clean is becoming sort of the new normal for anybody who wants to set what is viewed as a... Um, ambitious but achievable goal for climate mitigation in their own context, whether they are a procurer of energy, a provider of energy, a a state legislature, or whatever it might be. Um, You know, I think now if you say we're going to be 50 percent carbon free, or we're going to reduce emissions 50% relative to 2005 levels. And you stop there, that's not going to get a lot of attention at this point. And if part of what you want is to gain attention for being on the, on the bleeding edge of this trend, then you got to figure out a way to, to set a target that is near to, or entirely at fully carbon free. So I think that you add all this stuff up together and it's a... It's a real shifting of the window of what is considered to be meaningful.
0: Have you seen anyone actually add it up together and try to compare and contrast and like normalize the data and and figure out what the actual reductions across corporates, cities, states and utilities would be with all these targets? No, that would actually be hard. Would that be?
1: It's a good question. It would be it's doable. Um, I mean, there's overlap, right? So some of the utilities that have made these commitments are in states that are also thinking about making these commitments. Some of the cities that have made these commitments are in the territories of the utilities that have as well. So there's definitely some like normalization that would have to occur. But, uh, but I do think it's possible. It would be a really interesting question to answer.
0: Get on that someone. I know there are plenty of wonks out there who will get on that. Maybe that's you, Shale, Maybe that's someone else. But uh I'm sure someone will eventually do it. That will be that'll be an important piece of the the puzzle. And and speaking of what 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 puzzle pieces are missing? Any anything that like stands out to you as something that could that that's missing from helping us execute these targets?
1: Well, what I'd like to see is is more. You know, again, you want to be sure that if you're setting a twenty forty five or a twenty fifty target, you want to be sure that there are interim milestones. One, two. I think you want to be clear eyed about the challenges, especially as you get to closer and closer to that 100 percent clean. And if you see gaps, you need to have answers for here's how we're going to try to go about solving them. We're going to dedicate a bunch of time and attention or money or something, depending on what the case may be, to this suite of technologies that we think will maybe help us get there or we think we can get there but we need a further build out of transmission and here's our plan to get more transmission built so uh, you know i guess what i want to see coming along with all these targets is as much forethought as possible into the the process of getting there
0: exactly it's it's for me the missing puzzle piece is regulatory you need rules to allow dispatch of distributed energy aggregation of distributed energy better transmission siting you got to continue to improve interconnection standards it's all the boring stuff that has a huge impact on whether the transition is smooth or not and I think that those policies uh, while lumpy are certainly coming along well do you feel good about this you feel good about this trend then shale it's not it doesn't sound like it's greenwashing it sounds like it's something meaningful. Yeah,
1: I think it's in some cases somewhere in between, but in aggregate, when you add it all up, I think this is a big deal. And I think, you know, a decade or two from now, we will look back on this period that we're in the midst of right now as having been sort of when the when, when broadly our ambitions shifted. Um, in this case, you know, in spite of sort of inaction at the federal level, uh, basically every other level now is, is seeing a lot of thought put into this. So I'm, I'm really positive about it.
0: You'll be updating that spreadsheet a lot, huh?
1: Yeah. Uh, we <laughs> we send a lot of links back and forth over Slack.
0: Well, that's going to do it for us. We 100% appreciate you, dear listeners, and we want to hear from you. I'm sure there are folks out there who have been tracking this stuff. So what did we miss? Uh, are, are we missing any like differentiating factors between targets? Are you critical of some of these targets? We just want to hear your feedback on how we're thinking through whether or not these targets are meaningful and what you think the ultimate impact will be. Is it going to get us to where we need to go? You can hit us up on Twitter. The Interchange Show is there. Shale's there. I'm there. We read all your tweets. And uh, you can send an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com as well if you have some commentary. Um, in the meantime, give us a rating and review anywhere you get your podcast, Send a link to your friends and colleagues if you think they'd like this show. And thanks a lot. We are 100% done We'll catch you next week. With Shail Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange Conversations on the Future of Energy from Green Tech Media.